Dear listeners, welcome at this ninth episode of the Meet the Expert podcast series. And in this series, Meet the Expert, together with well-known experts from around the globe, we explore challenges and opportunities in the big veterinary world. This episode is the second of two podcasts in which we are recording uh, we, which we are recording together with Associate Professor Daniel Linares of the Iowa State University in the United States. He's a well-known global expert on PERS virus. And last time we looked at monitoring of PERS virus in sow farms. And now we shall be focusing on PERS virus classification and how to break the chain of infection. The Meet the Expert podcast series is a co-production of Beringer Ingelheim Animal Health and Pig Progress. My name is Vincent Tebeek. I'm editor for Pig Progress, and I shall be the host of today's episode. And also in this episode, you will hear audio-visual editor Iris Hoffman, without whom this podcast wouldn't be possible. And you will hear her uh, with questions during this episode as well. Um, to our guest today, Professor Daniel Linares is an Associate Professor and Director of uh, Graduate Education at Iowa State University. He started academic career at the Universidade Federal de Goiás in Brazil, where he got his DVM and via an MBA and later a PhD in Veterinary Population Medicine at the University of Minnesota. He found his way to Iowa, where he's been working for over seven years now. Professor Linares, Welcome once more, and we have a lot to discuss today. So um, let us zoom on the topic of PERS, classification, PERS virus classification first. Um, one thing I was wondering is that we all know that viruses do mutate, and some do a lot like influenza virus and African swine fever virus, to my knowledge, doesn't mutate that much or that quickly. In that spectrum, where can we place PERS virus exactly? Hi, Vincent. Happy to be here with you again. And so on, on that perspective, may, based on the things that we know today, PERS virus is one of the most uh, ever-changing, ever-evolving viruses that, that we know. It changes more than the virus of uh, HIV, mm -hmm. more than uh, influenza, more than African swine fever. And again, more than any uh, known RNA virus. So birth is really uh, a moving target. It keeps mm. changing. Wow. So it's even because influenza is known for it, but it, it, it mm -hmm. is even more uh, more mutating than that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's really a moving target. So if you wanted to understand the variety of kinds of PERS viruses that there are, it must be very wide then as well. Could, could you paint that picture? Yeah, well, we, we, uh, there is some data here from recently from uh, a few farms that we did whole genome sequencing mm -hmm. of PERS virus, right? So in fact, it detected in those, say, endemically infected herds. And from 22 herds that we did uh, uh, several in longitudinal whole genome sequence data, the long story short is from the 22 herds, all but only two had, had the multiple viruses going on. Right? So one farm had just true what you say, what, what you, you could say that it's a really close to a homologous virus going on in the herd. Uh, but every other one had two, uh, two three, four, four viruses co-circulating in the herd. 
So it's it's more so it's not only about what's the virus in the herd and how it changes. It's what's the cloud of viruses that uh, that are co-infecting the herd, mm-hmm. and what's what what are those patterns over time, right? In terms of uh, a dominance and and a production impact. Yeah, is it is it can can it be explained in which way these viruses uh, differ from each other? Is that uh, can can you make that clear, or is that too technical to 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 give any explanation about? Yeah, we know while well, looking at the whole genome, there mm-hmm. is no portion of the genome that is not changing, right? All the way from the beginning to the end of the fifteen thousand base pairs. Or one all the way to seven, uh, there, there is no constant region there. They are always they, they are all all changing. What we know is the more diversity, the more production impact from. So from those herds that we did whole genome sequencing, we also tracked their response uh, uh, strategy adopt uh, implemented for for pers right mm-hmm. management and also track their recovery over time. And the more diversity the more the big the more severe was the production impact so now back to your question why it's at at least to me i think it's still a black box there is no hot spots identified in that genome or gene markers for virulence right mm-hmm. Dif- different than many other pathogens in pers we do not uh, know what specifically in the genome is associated with uh, with virulence or protective immunity but we know it's a fact by for a fact that it uh, it keeps changing, and that the the more diversity the of the virus popular clouds right the virus 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 cloud mm-hmm. the more you can expect in terms of productivity impact in the herd. Yeah, and this is a question of the the more op, the more types of virus there are, the more chance there is that one of them is highly pathogenic, for instance. I think you could say that too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular strain you know of that producers and vets need to be very, very afraid of? Yes, but the <laughs> the problem is that that uh, the uh, the the answer changes over time and by region, right? So if you go to Spain today, they're going to mm-hmm. talk about this this Rosalia strain. Yes. Here in the U.S., it really depends on the region. Mm-hmm. There are some regions that people are are having problems with this lineage one C variant of uh, RFLP144. There are some other regions that it's more 174. So it really depends on the time and place that you are talking about. Yeah, uh, I see, I see, and uh, that's what you get when a virus um, mutates uh, mm-hmm. as quickly as that. Um, let us talk about how the virus presence is being translated inside a farm. Um, I understand that it is generally possible to recognize four different stages of developments once a farm gets infected. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, uh, talking about acute phase and then obviously also a farm owner and a veterinarian would kind of release its um, their, their own methods to make sure that the virus gets under control. Um, that there is kind of four stages of disease development. Um, can, can we walk through all these four stages bit by bit? Yeah, it's important that uh, systems and vet and veterinarians, producers, right? They establish those stages. Mm-hmm. It could be uh, uh, more complex than that. We work with some producers that have uh, twelve stages, for example, right? And this system of four stages was mm-hmm. put together by the American Association of Swine Veterinarians, led by Dr. Holt Kemp and and several others, and uh, it's it really 
gets incorporates this fact that for pairs it's beyond positive negative there are shades of of positives and shades of negative which so kind of they, links back to the to our previous podcast as well that we kind of needed to continue to monitor to make sure to figure out in where we are in this process i suppose exactly yes mm. okay please continue no yeah so stage one is is the worst case scenario is when you 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 were positive unstable uh, acutely infected so typically with a lot of uh clinical and uh, production uh, co consequences of pers infection right it's it's the worst one and then it evolves all the way to four four is going to be the naive one the the whereas there is no virus there is no evidence of virus there's no antibodies or 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 uh virus circulation in the herd where you want to end up in the end right uh, uh, yeah that would be the where you would not see any clinical consequences of mm -hmm. course of of pers right from start to finish from the breeding herd all the way to the finisher and so the stage one can uh, be subdivided into two or three where the first one is called the 1a it's a mm -hmm. po positive stable acutely infected and then the and then the 2b is the low prevalence so you, mm -hmm. you're still positive and stable but now you 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 have a, a low prevalence of virus characterized by uh but you have some negative results some positive most most are are, are negative results on your processing fluids or tongue tips or you talk, we talked about that last time right mm -hmm. those those uh samplings will result mostly positive some 75% sorry negative 75% negative with mm -hmm. some positive here here and there mm -hmm. they stage 1 1a right going back to the 1a mm -hmm. the toughest part in terms of clinical and production impact are the first 12 to 16 weeks. Mm -hmm. That's when you really uh, see clinical pigs, you see high mortality, you see aborts, wave, that kind of stuff. And then after 16 weeks and until you reach that low prevalence is the that second kind of uh, half of the, of the 1A. The 1B, as we talked about already, is the low prevalence mm -hmm. and the uh, of, of course the next logical step from a uh, low prevalence is is no prevalence right mm -hmm. so so that's the stage two which is also called stable it's uh where there is no diagnostic evidence of uh of active uh, actively uh, uh circulating virus so the mm -hmm. pcrs will all be negative on your processing fluids or tongue tips your family oral fluids uh but you don't expect the, the herd to be negative at this point that's why it's called stable right so there may be still virus uh in the tonsils virus uh, somewhere in the herd but not being ac actively as uh, being shed and, and transmitted i that's see but the, the, that's the, a stable but um the, this stage would already characterize it by well the panic is gone so to say the the the, the critical mm -hmm. acute phase of disease and 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 yeah probably the death of pigs will will be over correct yeah mm -hmm. clinically pigs look fine yeah. you look at the production records mortalities aborts everything is back to baseline so you don't see any anything here in terms of pro production impact however the virus is still there harboring right uh, in the uh, hiding in the herd so it may very well be your your destination if you don't 
uh, have uh, plans on uh, going completely negative and and uh, therefore fully susceptible with no herd immunity to the virus. Uh, there, there, is, there are production systems that will remain here. Mm-hmm. And if so, they want to pro- keep the herd immunity high. So that's why the stage two, they it, it can be further divided into two stages, the plain two, right? Plain stable or the two VX standing for two. It's a stable, but vaccinated mm-hmm. with some sort of ongoing immunization with uh, an MLV and modified live virus vaccine. Mm-hmm. in either the cells or the guilds. So what you're trying to do here is there may be still a, a, a vaccine virus in the herd, especially a week or two after vaccination, but no evidence of, of uh, wild type presence mm-hmm. in the herd. Excellent. Then we've had one stage one and stage two. What would you characterize as stage three in this case? So the stage three for the herds that uh, want to go negative, specifically for those one herds that want to go from stable to truly negative, uh, the stage three is uh, called the provisional negative. And uh, it's uh, it, it's when you, you, you are able to bring replacement guilds back to the herd and demonstrate that they remain PCR negative. In other words, that there is no active of virus activity in the herd and so no transmission going on you bring the guilds they remain negative mm-hmm. that's the three and then the stage four is the where you bring the herd back to truly negative right to naive and that's gonna happen if you keep bringing your negative herds back into the herd uh with the with time with uh, the normal herd replacement that happens you're gonna transition all the the cells that have seen PERS virus before to and replace that to the ones with the ones that are incoming that are truly negative. So for a quick math, if you have a replacement rate of about fifty percent, that means that in two years, right, you would have replaced the whole herd, and now your your whole herd is is negative again, mm-hmm. and so you're truly negative back to back to to where you really need to rely on biosecurity and uh to to keep that way right it is it is it is very uh, very remarkable to see how a veterinarian addresses an issue of an of a virus outbreak or a virus issue uh, completely different than um any person outside um veterinary science would do or well i suppose with humans is it's the same as soon as you've kind of recovered from a virus you think okay i'm back again and then probably not realizing that the aftermath is still going on inside your body. That it takes longer. Yeah, right. It's, especially in, the, in those stages, uh, uh, in, in that stages too, right? They, they're mm-hmm. stable, plain stable or with, with vaccine, gotta really keep guards, uh, biosecurity guards up and are really right to, you don't, you don't want to give opportunity for the virus to recirculate in the herd. It makes sense. It makes sense. Now, veterinarians will be uh, closely monitoring this situation, as we've seen in the previous podcast, and they will be helping a farmer um, how to overcome this this challenge. And they will, at some point, have to identify, okay, stage one is over, stage two can be started, or we're now moving into stage three. 
and depending on probably the the, the, the approach and the strategy they've taken to, to overcome a PERS infection. But how can they determine in which stage stage and um, a development is and uh, what tools are there available to help them? It's it's uh, yeah it's really based on uh, on monitoring monitoring mm-hmm. surveillance system incorporating the combination of uh, production monitoring as well as a diagnostic monitoring to really have an understanding on what is the purse activity in the herd right for there there are some specific guidelines and criteria on how to transition from one stage to the next mm-hmm. from 1h 1b to 2 to vx 3 and 4 and uh, as well as guidelines to remain in that stage right so if you got got to demonstrate that you 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 still belong to that to that bucket and if you didn't downgrade your bucket right didn't mm-hmm. move from 2 back to to 1 1b or or 1a so there's specific diagnostic criteria. Um, uh, Dr. Marius Kunzi and, mm-hmm. and myself are working on a, on a booklet to summarize uh, that that should be available in the in the purse.com website. And, uh, and for those that like the, the more, more reading, there will be the Dr. Holdkamp's paper that we talked about also describes all that, uh, all those details with several tables to guide uh, to guide the audience. Excellent. So uh, those will be available, um, for instance, at purse.com, I suppose. Yes. Mm, excellent. Um, I think it's time to um, wake up Iris for her um, her, her part, because uh, yeah, we haven't heard you yet, and um, we would like to change that. So um, please, let's hear if there is any questions from our audience. Yes, hello. It's nice to be here again. Uh, and there are three questions from the audience. Um, one of them, and the first one, does heterologous vaccination provide good cross-protection with contemporary highly virulent strains? Well, the short, good question and the short answer is yes. Several uh, experimental and field-based trials demonstrate that the vaccine it's, it's all about expectations for PERS. It is not going to provide a sterilizing immunity. It's not going to prevent infection. It's not going to uh, bring a mortality back to baseline per se, but it will, uh, regardless of the genetic distance between the MLV vaccine and the, and the wild-type virus, it will reduce the clinical consequences of, of infection. And uh, ju- just one quick comment here to follow up is based on that whole genome data that we talked about there earlier today, there is no such a thing as homologous. And most of the time you will be dealing with uh, several variants of the virus anyways, dealing in the herd. So the expectation of homologous is, is uh, uh, I don't know how frequent that happens in the field based on our experience, it, it's not frequent. Great, thank you. Uh, another question from a veterinarian, the location where I am from uh, where I'm from, as a high incidence of PERS virus. Is this kind of situation, uh, is it cost effective to achieve stage three or four in the herd classification? Or is it um, efficiency wise okay or even better to stay at stage two vaccinated uh, in case of costs? 
very good question. And uh, to and what we see here ha happening with the producers we interact with is is uh, it only it's only economically feasible to go to three or four if you are confident that you are gonna uh, have outbreaks. The outbreak frequency should be two to three years or or more spaced out, right? If you're breaking every year, if you're breaking every other year, it's uh, it's much much more economically advantageous to keep that herd immunity high so that when the person infection comes, when the outbreaks come, the clinical consequences are going to be lower and it's going to be a quicker, swifter recovery. So it all goes back to your biosecurity and, and your outbreak frequency. If it's more, if you're breaking every two years or so, or up to three, it's uh, you better well stay, stay uh, uh, with the 2VX status bringing right with uh keeping the herd with high 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 herd immunity and therefore that's your insurance for wild type uh encounters but breaking in here a little bit um i hear you say farms that well uh, that break um have an outbreak every two years or something if we take the, the four stages that you've described um how quickly can a farm go through all of them can can a farm go from well infected to getting completely back to stage four? Um, I don't know in a in a matter of a few months, or is that impossible? Well, if you want to bring back to straight from one to four in a mm -hmm. few months, then you really talk about uh, re repopulating the herd, right? With yeah. a, with a negative with a negative uh, mm -hmm. uh, breeding stock. Now, if you want to transition from one to a uh, the the let's break down that by stage from 1a to to 1b it will take some uh 26 to 30 weeks or so right then to to reach the stable status from the outbreak to state to stable status 30 between 30 and 40 weeks is is what people should expect if not if you you really have mm -hmm. high positivity or low ct values by then then there is opportunity to to re review the biomanagement and the the, mm -hmm. the whole strategy then st stage three takes a couple months to demonstrate that your breeding herd your your incoming yields are still negative after introduction and by the time you are three to reach through stage four it re really depends on your replacement rate so that's why you use that rule of thumb if you're 50 percent, it's gonna take two years to, yeah. to get there we're talking about matter of years rather than months yeah mm -mm. okay sorry for interrupting iris back to you no problem no problem you can always interrupt me vincent <laughs> <laughs> um yes we have the last question also from a veterinarian of course uh, is vaccination of sows enough to provide protection to growing pigs? I I don't think so. It is really sow vaccination in my mind is it protects the the sow and it may protect the baby piglets up until they're weaned or shortly, very shortly after. Then the antibody, uh, the maternally derived protective immune response is going to quickly wane. Right, so by the time these pigs hit the finisher, they they will be close to fully susceptible again. So gotta if we, you expect challenge wild type virus challenge somewhere during grow finish, you gotta protect the 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 growing pigs uh, themselves and not rely solely on ma uh, maternal maternal 
uh, immunity. Great, thank you for answering those questions. And back to you, Vincent. Thank you, Iris. And I think the last question also gave us a nice bridge to um, the last thing I wanted to address in this podcast. And that is that we may want to have attention for the situation in grow finisher herds, because, well, obviously they, 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 they may need a different strategy for that. Um, and yeah, they've got all mature animals set next to each other. So um, could you explain um, what, what is the specific uh, difficulty or danger perhaps purse-wise with grow finisher, grow finisher pigs? Yeah, so when we think about the, the grow finish pigs and the, the whole ecology of, of purse virus in the industry, we see here from, from data from the labs or in data from producers, regional data that grow finish pigs are, are, are really a source of infection. Uh, that's, they are amplifiers of, of the infection. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the grow finish pigs, they receive piglets from the south farms. And a lot of times they receive pigs from multiple south farms, mm -hmm. or they would receive pigs at varying degrees of prevalence from high to low. But then, as you said, there are just a lot of lungs, a lot of, they, they commingle with the space. So whatever low prevalence there in some herds, they're gonna amplify that, uh, bringing positivity rate up and then becoming a source of, of infection to the whole region, not only to other grow finished farms, but also to, to, to the south farms. And we know even though the, the piglet direction, right, the flow comes from the south farms to finishers, there is there are there are a, a, a lot of epidemiological connections that go that goes back to the south farms. If you think about supplies, people, um, uh, uh, cars, right, vehicles of of different uh, for different purposes. So whatever it's going on in the grow finish, they're amplifying the virus and becoming a source for the south farms and surrounding grow finishers. So th th those are really, like you said, right? What's the danger? They, at least now, what we see here, they're very important in maintaining and amplifying here the ecology of of birth virus in the industry. I suppose that is only getting worse as soon as uh, you're living in a very big, dense area where there's a lot of pig farms closely together. I think then you increase the risk of there being cross contamination. I suppose. Yeah. I, I would agree. And the, the denser the areas, the more of those epidemiological connections you have, right? So somebody doing chores in one barn, mm -hmm. going to the next and then the next and then the next. And so that's you're you're bringing the virus with with you. And I recall some while ago, there was, for instance, um, a lot on um, airborne um, transmission of uh, PERS virus from one to the other. I recall this study that it also was dependent on the type of weather. For instance, when it was foggy, then there were a lot of um, um, air droplets where it could, could, uh, uh -huh. could the virus could tra transport. Um, how about the situation now? Would you consider that um, airborne infection risk, would you consider that to be overrated or is, in your opinion, that is still something that is very uh, important to keep an eye on? No, I think it's important and we see producers uh, nearby here uh, still filtering their farms, right? Mm -hmm. To raise that biosecurity. When you filter a farm, you change the whole culture and the whole perspective on biosecurity. You really raise that bar and uh, you change a lot of other practices to really 
invest in bio, in biosecurity. However, based on uh, outbreak investigations here by Dr. Holtkamp and and others, uh, there are some other low-hanging fruits here mm -hmm. to improve biosecurity. Uh, things like personal biosecurity. We talked about shared labor, the downtimes and maintenance mm -hmm. folks that come to to fix electrical or or, or some other emerging problems in the farm. Yeah. Pig transport, uh, dead removal. They're, they're frequently the number one or the, the what he calls the smoking guns, right? Or the most the, the likely source of the virus. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wouldn't, I, I know that different regions, different farms will rank those differently, but to, based on what we see here, personnel, biosecurity, and uh, that, that removal are typically the, the number one uh, uh, sources of infection here in yeah. our side of the... <laughs> Always the the role of the humans again, what they can do to to reduce the the, the infection risk. Um, I understand we can discern at least four methods and approaches which could help the swine industry overcome all these challenges. Um, well, being vaccination, and how often, um, zooming in at the pig and people flow, a coordinated biomanagement, and moss. And I think it's go. It's good to if we could go through all of them one by one. Um, could you could you take the initiative for that? Could you um, well first let's zoom into uh, vaccination for a bit. Yeah, sure. We talked about vaccination. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we talked about vaccination of growing pigs. We talk about vaccination for sows. Uh, in, in our opinion, here based on the data we, we have seen, pretty effective uh, ways to build that herd immunity. And uh, and help the pigs uh, deal with the clinical consequences of wild type if if mm -hmm. they're vaccinated, especially so if they're vaccinated uh, uh, ahead of the ahead of the challenge. Mm -hmm. Whether there is uh, on a routine basis or whether there there is and coming coming to your pig flow here too, right? As part of uh, this uh response to outbreaks which we call load close expose mm -hmm. where we would close the herd for guilt introduction so temporarily interrupting continuous guilt uh, guilt coming in and uh along that same uh, around that same time you would vaccinate the whole herd so it's not just uh one stage or another stage of inf of production is you vaccinate the whole herd close mm -hmm. the herd for 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 a while Right, 30 to 40 weeks until there is diagnostic evidence of no more uh, virus being circulating in the herd, then you may or, or may not stop that vaccination depending on that decision. Am I gonna remain stable with vaccination, herd immunity high so that my my uh, a routine inf or, or constant infection right coming in, I, I'm gonna mitigate those? Or am I gonna stop vaccinating and moving through stages three and four Mm -hmm. And uh, again, that's going to depend a lot on your biosecurity and expected outbreak frequency. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, let's zoom in brief briefly on the pig and people flow. What kind of um, well, what, what kind of uh, mm -hmm. recommendations could you give there? Yeah, well, one other thing that we didn't talk about that uh, the pigs and pig thinking about pigs and people flow mm -hmm. is going back to what we discussed a little bit uh, the previous podcast is that uh, purse is not equally equally distributed in farms mm -hmm. right especially in that stage where you're navigating through 
you you are you went from high positive to low prevalence and now probably stable uh very low prevalence your virus may be in some f- barns right and not in in the other one maybe in some rooms faring rooms not in the other one and within the faring rooms in some crates definitely not all of them so whatever people could do to make it difficult for the virus to to transmit now you're helping the, the to break that chain mm-hmm. right so what i mean here is not holding pigs back for quality mm-hmm. uh with when people need to visit several barns or several uh rooms within the barn what can be done in terms to in terms of hygiene right to kind of uh prevent the pathogen from being spread by by humans so things like uh either washing hands or changing gloves coveralls uh, sanitizing their boots that it really helps to to make it again make it difficult for the virus to transmit especially when there's low prevalence in the in the herd i see that um, th- that that all makes sense i suppose um coordinated biomanagement what uh what what could you explain what you mean with that yeah bi- biomanagement is this is uh, this series of practices that are implemented to make make it hard for the virus to to transmit uh, between rooms and crates and and so on and so forth and so we we, we would that make sense that you you're you're trying hard for the virus to transmit so you're gonna implement so those hygiene and pig flow uh people flow so that it's all unidirectional you're not bringing back older pigs to the to the to the younger rooms mm-hmm. You're not cross-fostering at least uh, between rooms and between age age groups. And uh, if people need to go back to younger rooms after having visited the old ones, wash hands, change gloves, make it make it tough for the virus to transmit. I think that's the 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 big the big thing. And of course, each herd, depending on the structure and what's available, then they they're gonna implement what's possible in the barn. That makes sense, and that you can scale that up to even a regional regional level, I suppose. Yes, yes. Mm, I see. And then there is the importance of moss. What do you mean with that? What we mean by moss is just a, uh, an acronym for monitoring and surveillance systems. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's right. We we talked about the the importance of watching the pigs clinically. Mm-hmm. But then we talked a lot about in this previous two podcasts on that subclinical or pseudo subclinical infection where mm-hmm. everything seems to be great, seems to be recovered, seems to be in the baseline. And so if you trust your eyes, you just don't see yeah. where's activity. And uh, it, it, it may be okay if you only own a breeding herd and and gets rid of the, the baby, the, the piglets after breeding herd. But mm-hmm. for sure, if the prevalence is near zero, but not zero, the bomb is going to explode somewhere during grow finish phase and the, there is only one way to find out what's the person's activity is by implementing those uh, monitoring uh, mo- monitoring approaches from from uh, tongue tips to processing yeah. fluids family fluid serum w- whatever makes sense for the herd and that uh, brings us all back to um, that makes all everything a full circle i think because, it's a loop uh, isn't it it is. It is. Uh, we could have started anywhere, and we ended up here again. Um, I think we've 
touched on very many things today as well. We've uh, we've looked at a variety of different PERS viruses. We've looked at what stages uh, sow farms can go through or farms can go through when they get infected. And we've also looked at methods how to break the chain of infection. Um, I would like to thank you because I think I'm looking at the clock. It's time to draw things to an end. So I'd like to thank you for being with us today. Um, for our listeners, a following episode, we will leave PERS behind us and we will concentrate on the wonderful world of porcine circovirus type 2 and what are the benefits of whole herd vaccination in that case. And we will have that podcast together with Dr. Marina Sibila of the Cresa Irta in Catalonia, Spain. So make sure not to miss that episode. And for now, I would like to thank Professor Linares for being with us once more. So great job again, and thank you for that. Thank you very much for having me. It has been a pleasure, and I for sure look forward to hearing that PCV2 uh, recording as well. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to record it as well. I thank you for being with us. I thank the audience for uh, listening to this podcast and we will be back soon with more updates. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>